You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello and welcome to a social justice podcast. I'm Nicholas Sperling. I'm joined by uh, Keishan Roy and Rebecca Love here. Keishan grew up in social housing across Canada, later spent a decade as a senior political advisor in BC and Ottawa, and has been working in and writing about affordable housing for the past decade. They're an author and affordable housing expert and use they, them pronouns. And Rebecca is my coworker at the flag shop and a representative of the Vancouver Tenants Union. Rebecca uses she, her pronouns. She grew up in the seized territory of the Choctaw First Nation before moving to the unceded ancestral territories of the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation. She's been a lifelong tenant, evicted once and being evicted again soon. A social justice podcast is based off of a social justice coloring book. Every two weeks, we release new episodes focusing on various different social issues in our society. Uh, thank you both for joining me today. Uh, Kishan, did you want to uh, provide a little bit more of an introduction for yourself? Um, I just wanted to thank you for having me here, for one, and um, say that uh, I ended up spending the past decade in housing, but... Uh, social justice has always been important to me, and it's exciting to be part of a podcast that's focusing on it. And uh, I remember in 2008, I worked for Stéphane Dion when we tried to form a coalition government with Jack Layton, and climate justice was central to what we were talking about then, and certainly housing. And we lost a decade on those issues uh, when that government was never formed, even though it had the majority of the votes in the House. And I came back to BC um, not knowing where my place was and sort of finding some campaigns and working through it. And when I took a job in the nonprofit housing sector, there wasn't a big housing movement. It wasn't a big issue. So sometimes um, the things that are a major social justice issue uh, today were in the past, sometimes you just don't know, but you know in your heart what you're fighting for. And when it comes to something like housing, which we're going to focus on today, it's going to intersect with housing. Uh, with, housing will intersect with transportation, with climate, with poverty, and with all kinds of other areas of social justice. Absolutely. We hear this every episode. There's so much intersection between all of these issues that we talk about, and I'm sure it's going to come up repeatedly throughout this podcast as well. So this is just going to be a very basic question to start things off, because I always try to get a sense of what it is that we're talking about. So the first question is just, what does it mean for housing to be affordable? So I wrote a book in 2017 about the affordable housing crisis in BC, and I used in that book the CMHC definition, which is about 30% of your gross income. And the truth is, though, that affordable housing is also, if it's 25% of your income, or 15%, or 10%. Um, and it doesn't need to specifically be uh, co-op housing or social housing. Uh, there's the majority of people who are in the lowest income brackets and who are housed affordably do it's in the private market. So affordable housing is a broad term, but when somebody is spending far more than 30% of their income on just basic shelter, all of the other aspects of their life start getting clawed back because there's no disposable income anymore. Uh, so you end up with people's health deteriorating. Uh, or, you know, I met a couple once in Kitsilano who were spending 100% of their income on rent. Wow. So 
you know, some of this talk about affordability is really uh, not about any specific person, but more like a warning signal to society that the financialization of housing and the low incomes that people uh, have right now is, is, is destroying lives. And so, uh, you know, people hear about affordable housing and they try and make it a math problem for themselves to, to solve. But if there's nothing available, there is no math that can solve it. There's a $375 shelter rate in BC right now. So if you're somebody with a disability, uh, and I met somebody with Down syndrome, she was a self-advocate, and was saying like, you know, I'm ready to live more independently than in this group home. My allowance from the government is $375 a month. Where, what are my housing options? There are, There is nothing. So we can talk about affordable housing as a statistic, but in truth, uh, in much of British Columbia, it doesn't exist because we didn't build any rental housing at all for, for 30 years. Right. And when you mention that um, percentage as well, one of the things that I always wonder about is you know, 30% of someone's income if they're making $100,000 is very different than 30% of someone's income if they're making $30,000. Would it maybe be better to look at the amount of expendable money people have after they pay for housing as opposed to using a percentage of their income to figure out what is affordable and what isn't? Yeah, and you know, the 30% measure wasn't always the measure. It had been 25 before that. And, you know, governments could just keep increasing it. A lot of homeowners get approved with 40, 42% of their uh, uh, income going towards their, their mortgage. So, yeah, it, it is arbitrary depending on uh, how much income you have. But uh, the reason why it's important to always consider income uh, is because for people who uh, truly need affordable housing, we have to know how much resources they have available from themselves, whether it's working uh, at a job, part-time, full-time, whether it's from pensions, whether it's from disability. You know, people have a collection of resources in their life. And for uh, a large percentage of Canadians, 20, 30 percent of, uh, of people don't work don't work at all. And it was still as a society, everybody deserves the basic dignity of shelter. So we need to know so general measures of what affordability is. And probably at 30%, that means somebody would have 70% of their income for other things if there was housing available. Right. And I guess if you're addressing at the same time the uh, underpayment of employees and, um, and the fact that a lot of people don't necessarily have a huge income, that's going to factor into that percentage. And uh... Yeah, and in places like Vancouver, where rents have escalated exponentially uh, over the past couple of the past decade, really, and certainly in the past couple of years, they've gone up tremendously. Um, in, in places like that, you can make an above average income and still not find affordable housing, mm -hmm. not just because of shortage of supply, but also because incomes haven't kept up with the basic cost of living. Just nearby in Seattle, the minimum wage is probably close to $22 Canadian an hour. Now that's an hour's flight. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and so that has a, an effect throughout their whole state and that's our neighboring state. So in Vancouver now, uh, you have more Americans living here than any city in the world. Mm -hmm. And they're coming from somewhere right next door with much higher incomes because we haven't raised minimum wages. Uh, our 
wages in the uh, film sector and in the arts are too low, and we haven't built uh, rental housing, so now the cost of the basic uh, elements of shelter are getting so high that everybody feels like they're in a squeeze. Right. And uh, did you want to touch on that, Rebecca, what, what it means to have affordable housing? Uh, one thing I do want to point out is that the city of Vancouver specifically has a different definition than other places. Of what affordable is? Yes, because someone, I can't remember which politician was, it said affordable housing is housing you can afford, <laughs> comma, duh, which <laughs> is not very useful. They consider it affordable if it costs less than buying a place. So obviously that's going to trickle down and make things much worse with new developments if that's your standard. Because if you can't afford a $2 million house, okay, that's true for most people who aren't in the, in the real estate ladder, but uh, that doesn't mean that you can also afford you know, $5,000 in rent. Right, absolutely. I, I think I heard a Vancouver councillor at one point saying that a uh, one-bedroom, one-bath for over $2,000 was affordable, and I yeah. kind of thought, mm, not really. Yeah. Um, and maybe this is a good chance to touch on what the difference between affordable housing and below-market housing is. Is below-market housing affordable? Or? <laughs> uh, not in this market. <laughs> I mean, below-market, um, I mean, that can mean anything. Um, I mean, if your if your average rent for a place is two thousand, then oh god, I completely lost my train of thought. What was the question? Well, I mean, it, it, let's use that example of yeah. two thousand dollars. If you have a two thousand dollar place, I mean, in theory, nineteen hundred dollars might be considered below market. Right. But is nineteen hundred dollars actually okay. affordable? Yeah. Right. That's where I was going mm -hmm. to Thank you. Yeah. Um, did you want to touch on that as well? Yeah. Well, if two thousand dollars is your rent, then uh, you know thirty percent. So you're probably if that's thirty percent of your gross income, then you're probably making six thousand a month plus, mm -hmm. so seventy-two thousand a year uh, or so. So um, that's above the average household income, mm -hmm. right? So if that's what a single person can afford, that's fine on their individual case, but by no measure is it, uh, uh, you know, part of our affordable housing. It, it might, it, you know, it's market housing is what it is. It's somebody making profit on it and somebody happy to pay the rent to live there. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. We need more of it. We should have been building it for a long time. But where we have a, a huge gap, too, is in non-market housing, uh, social housing, co-ops uh, in particular, uh, have become almost the only option for people in the lowest income bracket now because the uh, rental housing sector just didn't build anything for decades and decades, and the stuff that they're building now isn't affordable. Mm -hmm. And in BC, we're starting to have... A, a renaissance of our non-market housing stock for the first time in a very long time. But it takes 10 years for an apartment to be built. So mm -hmm. these investments we're making now might not be helping anybody immediately. And that's one of the really big challenges of uh, working in housing is, especially coming from politics where everybody thinks in four-year cycles, in housing, people tend to think in 25 and 50-year mortgages and 10-year building plans. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, even our uh, affordable housing plan for the province, I used to 
uh, chair BC's Rental Housing Coalition, we tried to calculate what it would cost and pitch things out over 10 years, but you can only really ramp the sector up over those 10 years so from the idea of, so we saw the federal government and the provincial government put out funding for the first time in decades for new social housing to be built. But it takes them a year or two to put the legislation together into the treasury board to pass the things to get the money in the, in through the budget. Then they have to create a program for everybody to apply to, and that takes another year. And then they've got to go through a process where they choose which projects go forward. So you might be, and we are, we're, we're five, six years here into new Democrat and uh, liberal governments provincially and federally, and we're just starting to see uh, housing projects uh, break ground on some project, you know, in many cases, and in many cases they're uh, still just waiting for, for approval. So it's very, very slow work, and yet everybody is passionate about it on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's a real uh, difficult to public policy issue. And do you think that those delays are the reason that uh, the renter's rebate, for instance, hasn't come to fruition yet? Because it seems like that's one of those measures that could be implemented more quickly, perhaps. But oh, it, it could have been implemented years and years and years ago. Uh, it, it is because of a, a systemic discrimination against renters throughout our whole government systems that things like this do not exist. In our property tax system right now, if you're a homeowner, you get a grant every year. Grant means free money. I used to own a home, couple homes, uh, different stages in my life, and you click a button on the internet and the taxes disappear. Mm -hmm. Now there's nothing like that for renters, right? right? And if you are unsheltered, if you are uh, currently without a home, the government takes $375 a month away from you the second you lose your home. So we have a broken system here that's full of discrimination and it's, they don't see it as discrimination, they see it as like uh, supporting the entrenched interests of the people who built this city. But what that means is that homeowners are receiving subsidy after subsidy after mm -hmm. subsidy and renters pay more property taxes and they pay for their parking more often and receive uh, no grants and subsidies from governments uh, whatsoever. So, you know, renters aren't allowed to serve in the Senate. There's no reason for that. You know, you have to own land to be, it, to be a public <laughs> official in Canada. But we have a lot of uh, uh, systemic kind of, a lot of this bias was brought in to discriminate against uh, indigenous people in particular because they wanted to, because they passed laws saying that if if you were First Nation, Métis, you, know, you, you couldn't own land at all. Uh, so you, being a landowner was sort of a, uh, uh, in a very legal sense, a sign that you were part of the upper echelon of society and the upper house is only uh, for landowners. This isn't part of our modern society now, in theory, but in law it is. Wow. Right. And, in, and, in, and so what you have is whole city councils, whole bureaucracies, uh, whole cabinets, uh, you know, uh, where everybody is a homeowner. Nobody is looking at through things, through the lens of the as a renter, and when they do, it's like, well, you know, well, my kid's looking for a place now and can't find it. Yeah, because we didn't build it for 30 years. Or, um, geez, there's nothing for me to downsize into. You know, there's these problems of convenience, but they right. don't see the systemic bias in favor of the rich that's been hardwired into almost every area of our political system. Um, it, it sounds a lot like 
that I concept of trickle-down economics of just giving so much to the people at the top and hoping it'll somehow help the people at the bottom without really recognizing that that's not how things work. It certainly doesn't work in housing. <laughs> right, uh, right. You, there may be some fields where you can where you can make the case. Maybe scientific research, you know, I think you want to give people with the capacity, mm -hmm. the, the funds to, to do the research. You can't just give every scientist a thousand dollars and see what happens, right? <laughs> but in housing, uh, if the people who are uh, using the housing, the renters and the owners, if they have the money to do it, uh, then it will be created to serve them. You can't just give the money to uh, landlords and hope for the best. You can't just give the money to developers and hope for the best. It, there has to be much more individual liberty in housing because every single unit is an entire life. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess this is probably a good time for me to be transparent and say I am a landlord. Um, and I've noticed this aspect of landlords thinking that they deserve to make immediate profits off of their properties. So this idea that you buy a property, you rent it out, and immediately you're making profits. But you're not only making immediate profits, you're also paying off your mortgage, and at the same time your property values are going up. So you're making profits in so many different areas, it seems very predatory. So in my instance, I decided to lower the rent, I lose money, lose money every month in order to give my tenants uh, a below market rent, whether or not it's uh, affordable for them, I'm not entirely sure, but it's lower than other units in my building. And I'm, I'm still going to end up probably making a profit on it in the future because the property values have gone up and because part of that money that I'm bringing in is helping me to pay off the mortgage. So I don't think there's a need for pricing to be this high. I think there's a huge component of that is just landlords trying to be greedy and, and make their profits at every level. Yeah, I think any landlord who complains, especially one who says something like, I've owned this place uh, 10 years, you need to also tell us what you paid for it and what its current assessment is before anyone is going to feel bad. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because either housing or, you know, investment housing is an investment, and therefore you take your wins and your losses, or it's a human right, and therefore it's accessible to everyone. And, and that's actually one of my other questions. Is housing a human right? It should be. It should be. It absolutely is. And I was in Quito, Ecuador, at a UN conference called Habitat 3, where... Canada signed on to housing as a human right internationally. And they shouldn't have had to because housing was a right in Canada when I grew up. And I grew up across this whole country. And I remember I grew up in a family not only in social housing, but always just at the margins. Uh, my mother is in the foster care system and uh, has a disability. And her family were always kind of in and out of challenging situations. And we should have seen homelessness within our family then, but we knew if we lined up at the social services office and uh, we would eventually either get some temporary support or there would be a room somewhere for us. So there was a lot more resourcefulness in government to be able to uh, find that for people because we believed everybody has a right to shelter. It was so obvious, but then you read your charter of rights and you're like, oh, 
doesn't really mention housing in here. Uh, but now Canada has signed off on it. So it's the obligation of uh, all of us as just members of this democracy, because government isn't separate from us. It's us, whether we like it or not. We made it. We're in charge of it through our votes. And um, we have the ability to either, you know, work in it or run for office. It's still ours. And uh, we now have to realize that, right? I remember when gay marriage was legalized, I had some friends who were older and um, I thought they would be so happy finally that they were able to be married and they immediately, well, no, that's for the younger people. It's not, it's not for us, right? Um, and so people had to actually get married. Gay people had to get married for there to be gay marriage. Somebody has to take the right. Right. It's not just a law that's passed and things happen. Um, and, the, and for the right to housing, uh, yes, it is a right, but it's a right we have yet to secure. Mm -hmm. That's why there's a now a, a national housing advocate to focus on a human rights-based approach to uh, realizing the right to housing. It's now like a mission in front of us as Canadians and and to a larger extent internationally, because I don't think we're the only country wrestling with this for a while, uh, uh, right now. Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, the world was very, very focused on getting high home ownership numbers in their country. And it sort of lost sight of everything else going on. And, um, and they hadn't thought about a right to housing in a substantial way. And while landlords may seem greedy today for trying to get a rent and a profit on their place, um, the bigger problem is that we don't have more landlords, that there aren't tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions more units of rental housing across Canada right now. We should have been building them. And instead, what we did is we took homes that were 1,700 square feet and made them 2,700 square feet. Mm -hmm. uh, detached homes, now 80% of the residential land in Vancouver is zoned only for those. So apartments aren't even legal to build. So we can, we still have a lot of work to do to realize that right to housing because you can't even legally build affordable housing right now. Mm -hmm. It's banned by zoning. Right. And I don't think the issue is necessarily the greedy landlords themselves. I think that's sort of a symptom of the issue and, and a lack of proper regulation of, of housing. But um, who do you think is most in need of affordable housing? Everyone who does not have a house right now. Uh, so the Hastings encampments, the Crab Park encampments, the people right above that who technically have a home in the SROs that keep burning, we've got to take... If we can, if we can fix the bottom of the market, we can fix everything else. If you lift from the bottom, it will slow upward. So starting with the people who have no homes, yes. getting them homes, and then sort of working your way up. They should be the number one priority for every single city, province, and for this entire country right now. It's a travesty what's happening. It's not right. And uh, they are the number one priority for really no government figure at all that I'm aware of right now. And it doesn't make any sense to me because um, right now across Canada, governments are now pulling in multi-billion dollar surpluses. But if we as a society made a billion dollars in surplus and some of us had to s sleep outside, who paid for that surplus? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Because the truth is uh, that we are taking advantage of people when we, let, when we leave them without our basic supports. How are we taking advantage of them? Well, homeowners, businesses, uh, even individuals all received all kinds of subsidies through COVID and receive all kinds of subsidies through our uh, initiatives to green our economy. There's all kinds of benefits for carbon taxes and everything else. Yet the people who are taking the uh, least amount of uh, out from the system, getting no grants at all, and who are producing the lowest emissions are left suffering the most. And in many cases, uh, there are all kinds of other health issues there that aren't being covered. And we've been negligent as a society. I don't know when we crossed that line where we decided all of a sudden that um, some people who are wealthier deserving of subsidies and people who are without, uh, we're going to call the cops on them or, or we're going to ignore them or we're going to talk about them like they're them and not us. Um, but we've crossed it. And uh, social justice podcast here, I think about Martin Luther King Jr. And near the end of his uh, life before his assassination, housing had become his great passion. And the housing... Uh, justice and fairness acts that were passed after his death in the United States were transformational and were a continuation of his legacy. But part of his pain in that area came from moving up from the south into the cities and seeing the slums. Mm -hmm. And I wonder sometime if MLK Jr. was to come here today, what would he say and what would he think? And we could show him our slums, but we could also show him that we don't even have slums anymore to offer people. (laughs) So we have become so, so negligent about the people who need our help the most. And um, sometimes I'm not sure what the path towards fixing it is, uh, other than hoping that there are some individual leaders out there who who use the powers of their office um, to push through change for people who have nobody speaking for them. Because the shelter rate is a very good example. And For people who are listening, if you're on income assistance or on welfare in BC, you get $375 a month uh, for shelter. That's not enough to rent anything today, anywhere in the province. Worse than that, if you lose your shelter, the government takes that away from you as well and leaves you on the street. It's a broken, broken system here. So I've mentioned this uh, in my book. I've talked about it with cabinet ministers. I've talked about it on stage in front of thousands of people and sometimes um, in direct messages with cabinet ministers. And, you know, it's now 15 years and there hasn't been a dime of change. Every other thing, even the minimum wage goes up a little bit now. All kinds of other funds are indexed. Yet for those who truly are getting the least, why do we twist the screws on them the hardest? It makes no sense. And I'm, I'm, waiting, for, um, uh, I'm waiting for somebody who wants to be premier, who wants to be mayor, who wants to be finance minister, uh, anybody who wants to be prime minister, to, to point out this injustice and to say, you know what, this is going to be my number one priority because you could raise that shelter rate tomorrow. Tomorrow, it's just one digit on the, on the books. And, you know, 
um, a few years ago, uh, there was a story I was involved in about mansions that were empty. And I had found about 800 of them across the, the lower mainland that were renting for per bedroom, less than $700 a month per bedroom wow. uh, on average. So you'd maybe see a uh, eight bedroom mansion renting for 5,000 a month, right? Mm -hmm. Now that was happening during the same week as our homeless count here. And there was uh, about, you know, four or 5,000 people in, that, w that were counted in that particular count. And far more empty bedrooms in mansions. Shelter beds cost $2,000 a month plus for the wow. taxpayer to uh, uh, provide that. And, you know, meanwhile, we rent out mansions for less than that. And we let all kinds of things sit empty. There, there's no logic to, to the way we do things. And when... When that came out, another thing really clicked for me, and that's that Burnaby has about a billion dollars in surplus as a city. And I'm not pointing a finger here at Burnaby. I'm pointing a finger at a billion dollars because I think people have forgotten how much money that is. We had a billion dollar surplus here. Provincially, goes by, nobody noticed. Oh, billion dollars here, billion dollars there. Mm -hmm. Billion dollars is enough to pay for the shelter of everybody who's unsheltered in the whole lower mainland for 20 years just on the interest without spending your billion just your interest you could do this so um you know i don't know that governments that bureaucracies or politicians want people in need to have that money I think they don't. I think they believe that their government systems are better, that they'd rather uh, social programs, that they'd rather put it into construction. Uh, it, you can't squeeze a dime out for people in deep need in this province, and it's sickening. I, well, one of the uh, expressions that comes to mind is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I, I've seen studies that show that if you just give people shelter, you cost society less overall whether it be because of the savings in healthcare expenses or crime or whatever the issue is, because when people have no money, they have to resort to all sorts of things that are healthy or that cost society a lot of money. So if you just put a roof over people's heads, it actually doesn't cost you anymore. No, it saves you a tremendous amount of money. And I think we have been spending so much of our money as a society treating the symptoms of homelessness. And you know, uh, for climate activists, that may ring true too. You know, we're spending a whole bunch of money treating these these symptoms and not the root causes. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to uh, housing, one of the root causes is the supply. We do need to actually construct it, and that is going to cost billions of dollars. But I remember in twenty seven, is it twenty eighteen? The federal government. That's not that long ago. It's only five, four years ago. Uh, the federal government launched their national housing strategy, and I introduced the minister at that, and it was just nearby here, uh, just, a, just a few blocks away. And it was $45 billion at the time. It's now over 80 And then I walked over the Burrard Street Bridge to go home, and underneath the bridge, in the rain, as the mud poured, were hundreds of tents, maybe dozens, but it felt like hundreds. And there was this really difficult disconnect for me, whereas on one hand you're with a minister who is saying, hey, here's $45 billion, we're going to help people in need, 
And then you walk over the bridge and you say, I don't know how long it's going to take for them to see any of that money. And many people might die waiting. Mm -hmm. And uh, here we are four years later. And I don't know that the money's reached people. Right. Hasn't gotten there yet. I, I don't know the right words to say it because it should have been. Uh, there's three areas of housing that you need to focus on. One of them is supply. And another is policy, such as legalizing it. Mm -hmm. But another is income, and the incomes never got there, and the, ha the supply still way behind, mm -hmm. and the policies are being debated at city halls. Yeah, I mean, money definitely doesn't go as far these days as it used to. When I bought my place in 2013, even, I was making minimum wage when I bought it, and wow. you can't do that anymore. Like, not even just where I live in Coquitlam, but anywhere in BC. Yeah, and you should be able to. And Look, I think um, housing prices are going to start dropping quite dramatically over the next little bit here as interest rates climb. It has to. Mathematically, uh, you just can't borrow as much at mm -hmm. the higher interest rates. So what should happen, and this is just theory, but as housing prices start to come down, you will see some renters who've been waiting to buy start to purchase, and you will see uh, uh, people downsize um, into places where, so that they don't have to carry their big mortgages. And as the new supply of rental housing that we are constructing does slowly start to open up, we should see our vacancy rates creep up. And then landlords will probably start offering incentives such as a free month's rent or we'll pay for your move or something like this. And then you may see rents come down, but I think we're still a long way off that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we saw some of that at the beginning of the pandemic, where uh, a lot of students were moving out and vacancies were finally opening up, and instead of like, dropping rents, it was incentives rather than that. Yeah, and I'm not certain that um, it's bad if rents are going up, if incomes are going up as well. But if government is going to freeze incomes like they have for people on income assistance, that's a government freeze for 15 years, mm -hmm. right? So you're going to freeze income but allow rent increases? Yeah. Well, you know, the math is never going to work out. Mm -hmm. And I think this might be a good time to talk about the fact that we are recording this in Vancouver. So a lot of the topics that we're discussing are sort of Vancouver related or BC or Canada related. Um, but I want to bring up one specific to Vancouver, which uh, was in the news recently, where the VPD were attacking homeless people in the downtown east side. And it seems like the focus in all of that is moving the problem, getting it out of sight, yeah. rather than actually fixing it. So what should the city be doing to approach that situation in a better way? I mean, if nothing else... Leave people alone. They, this is setting up those street camps. That's their resilience. That's them coming together, forming a community, and just trying to stay alive, basically. Uh, putting cops into the mix, it never goes well. There's no point. I mean, I sympathize with the, the fire department who is worried about different the, all the fires down there because we just had another one today. But at the same time, you can do that without the police getting involved. It, it seems kind of similar to that point that you made earlier about how there are no slums. Like mm -hmm. We don't even have that as an option because when people try to set up 
camps like that, they get removed. Yeah, and look, first thing I'll make clear is that policing isn't a solution to homelessness. If it was, I would let people know. I've researched the issue, I've looked into it. There's no evidence whatsoever to suggest that policing helps affordable housing. The number one most important housing issue for the city is a number of a number of buildings that are high flood and fire risk that are deteriorating, and uh, a huge percentage of them, maybe half, are owned by the province. So we, as a people, as a public, own these buildings um, that are a risk for fire, uh, that are at the front lines of crisis regularly right now in affordable housing, and um, that. Look, the whole stock throughout the east side of Vancouver needs to be reinvigorated. Uh, I happen to be of the mind that the best way to do that is to build a SkyTrain line connecting the PE, like was proposed by TransLink. Uh, I think, particularly if we're going to be hosting an Olympics in Vancouver and having the medal ceremony at the PE, then, you know, a Hastings uh, SkyTrain line makes tremendous amount of sense to me. I also think it would bring in billions of dollars of public investment, nonprofit investment, and private investment into the corridor. It's also the least safe street, Hastings Street, um, in the city for pedestrians. So there's a whole bunch of issues around climate and social justice and housing and policing. As far as I can tell, it's probably close to a billion dollars is going to be required uh, to be invested in the SRO stock in Vancouver from all levels of government, probably over the course of 10, 15 years. But there is no plan on which buildings are going to be rehabilitated when, on where uh, where people can move to, on what can, uh, what can be saved uh, and what needs to be uh, really closed down because it's too much of a risk. But I have no sense that police can solve any of this. Um, the BC provincial government should be paying uh, for all of this right away because they own the buildings and because their responsibility for housing and for health. Um, you know, they have sixteen billion to spend on a dam, so you'd think they. they the, <laughs> the BC government last year predicted they would have a ten billion dollar deficit, and now we're here with a billion dollar surplus. So mm -hmm. that's eleven billion dollars more than they expected. The Auditor General uh, says that BC is keeping their books in such a way that all of money that's coming from the federal government, they're kind of pushing it off to uh, future years and not recognizing it. So they're sitting on billions of dollars a, a year, uh, according to generally accepted accounting principles that they're not reflecting. Mm -hmm. We are in maybe the richest city in the continent. Uh, certainly it's becoming that on average. Uh, it's becoming the most expensive, but it's also extremely wealthy. This province is very wealthy. This country is very wealthy. It shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be a problem for them. It should be a rounding error for them to provide the basic necessities of life. And they should see immediate benefit in uh, job creation and lower policing costs and lower healthcare costs uh, by making uh, these investments. Uh, they're not right now. Uh, there's sort of a systemic conservatism uh, and, and towards austerity. Uh, so governments will always, instead of doing the right thing, 
preach to you about the fear of some scary thing that's going to happen, that if they don't do things exactly the way they're doing them now, then that scary thing is going to happen. And uh, that is superstition. In real life, you have a very rich, wealthy place with all the resources and all of the... Uh, public support to do the right thing and uh, sitting on your hands because you're trying to kowtow uh, to um, conservative sentiment uh, isn't, wouldn't even work to, for conservative voters uh, because frankly I don't think conservative voters believe that homelessness should be a thing in Canada. My mother uh, grew up in you know, my mother raised us in social housing that was built during the Brian Mulroney era. And she'll probably always vote for conservatives because when she was, you know, a teenager and had two kids and her husband left and had nothing, um, it was a conservative gov MP's office that she went to that helped her find social housing. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's a partisan issue. I think austerity is one of these things that's kind of uh, become... Um, systemic and fear-based uh, and, and uh, I don't know who's going to be the person to break that uh, but among the forefront are researchers in the United States and you mentioned the increases to minimum wage part of that happened because great researchers were able to prove that that whole myth that if you raise the minimum wage it would hurt business uh, was actually a lie mm -hmm. but people just believed it because it was good talking points for years and years and years. And uh, it's the same sort of thing with policing, right? You'll see people running for office right now, and they'll ask, what are you going to do about homelessness? And they'll say, oh, I'm going to hire 100 police officers. Well, 100 police officers, they're going to... How about 100 construction workers? How about 100 nurses? Like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't... I think it might, like, it might feel good for some voters to connect policing and homelessness. Like, it might just, like, feel good to talk about. But I can tell you, like, I've worked in the sector for so long, and i just never seen policing involved in housing at all. No, I mean, I, I, that's not where my mind would go at yeah. all. Yeah, <laughs> how about a couple hundred bucks? That'd probably be solving it for most people. Yeah. You know, I met somebody who uh, uh, lives in a boat, uh, under a boat, in a boat here uh, on the inlet, and he's six foot nine, and uh, he's a veteran. Uh, and so he's not going to, he doesn't fit in a shelter bed. He's too long for it. And being in those crowded spaces brings back his PTSD from two tours. And he just needs some private space. And so he knows he can get a boat for about 800 bucks and uh, kind of crash in it. Mm -hmm. for, and it'll last him for, for a couple of months, uh, maybe a year uh, before, you know, it might break apart or he's got to find something else. And this is his lifestyle here. Uh, I met somebody. Now, that person doesn't, a person has, a person for $375 a month isn't being offered dignity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't even have enough to pay a mortgage fee for a boat. Somebody else, a couple I met, rented a plot of land for $300. So they could afford it on their pensions, seniors uh, who had been homeless, and they'd built a uh, shelter from a Rona shed, but needed $1,500 to get their toilet hookup. Mm. Now, they don't need social housing. 
They don't even need $375 a, a month. Um, but $1,500 to get a little water hookup? There's a lot of homeowners, too, that could make rooms available in their homes for people who need shelter, for students, for workers, for people who are homeless, for women fleeing violence. If they had a little bit of money to fix up the place or to for insurance or things like this. But there's no programs like this. Mm -hmm. uh, there's massive government bureaucratic programs or uh, you're sleeping on the street. Yeah, and even that is so challenging. I was in Victoria, and uh, I have a, a van with a bed in the back. So when I go traveling, I often just pull over on the side of the road, and I sleep in, in my van on the bed. I was in Victoria. I pulled on off to the side of the road. I try to find somewhere that, you know, it's nice and deserted, so I'm not bothering anyone. So I'm on the side of this road. There's barely a house in sight. Wasn't making a single peep, and yet I still had the police called on me. So... I mean, I'm, I was imagining in that moment, if I was homeless or houseless in that city, how would I survive if I'm getting the police called on me in that, like, ideal situation? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, we're the West Coast here and we're supposed to be so cool and chill and uh, we've lost that. Like, mm -hmm. uh, people are calling cops each other over everything these days. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like, seriously, just let somebody sleep. Yeah. Right now, it's about $30 a night to rent a campsite in BC. Mm. So, government shelter rate is $375 a month is not is about enough for about 10 nights of a campsite. Mm. If you have a credit card, which they won't yeah. probably give you if you're on income assistance. So, the government knows what the deal is. Mm. They have land. They could shelter people on or at least let people uh, camp with some dignity. And instead, they give them the finger and send them out in the streets. And in fact, they send them to these city hall meetings where basic human rights are being debated uh, and don't step in and, and do anything. And then, Well, and I think there's um, a role that municipalities can play in there, too, because uh, if, when I was over on Vancouver Island in the Victoria area, the reason I was sleeping on the street is that their rest areas don't allow you to stay there for more than an hour. Yeah. If you go to the rest areas up in, uh, I think it was near Campbell River, there's people living in the rest areas. Well, you know, all over uh, B.C., there are far more tenting areas than uh, in near Vancouver, Victoria and uh, mobile home parks and RV parks. A lot of them in the Lower Mainland have been gobbled up over the past few years, manufactured home parks. This was a lot of affordable housing stock and a lot of transitional housing. And I've not, you know, just, uh, uh, I mean that not in terms of people uh, uh, going through just a, a transition in their life, but going from place to place and figuring things out as well, right? Uh, that's been depleted. Uh, you know, we kind of, for decades, built mansions and penthouses and shelters mm -hmm. and not much else. And uh, we slowly saw the manufacturing ho manufactured home parks get eaten up and uh, the affordable rental housing stock gets sold off to real estate investment trusts. And, like, you know, chip a chip a chip a chip, there's, there's not much left. But it, it's totally reasonable, you're right, for cities to be able to offer some place to stay to people who want to camp or are forced to camp uh, or just want to try it out. It's just an, a reasonable and normal thing to do in a place like the West Coast. It's actually something that Quinnell is looking into doing. I, no, sorry, not Quinnell. It was um, Qualicum Beach. 
So they have uh, people, I guess, quite often sleeping on the side of the road in their city. So uh, I looked up their website when I was there to see if that was okay for me to stay on the side of the road. They didn't say yes or no, but they did say that they were working on getting a whole bunch of parking spots right down by the water so that instead of having people, I guess, scattered around the city, sleeping in various areas, having residents call the police, they could just say, this is your area, park here, no problem, you've got a nice view, you're going to be safe, all of that. And obviously it's not an ideal solution, it's not providing people with homes, but um, at least they're taking some step, and, and it would be nice if other cities were doing that as well. Yeah, and uh, I think some cities can do a lot more, but some of them think they can do more than they actually can. Uh, the, these, We have a SkyTrain system. People can zip all around all the municipalities in the lower mainland. And so for some municipalities to not be building any affordable housing, uh, and for some municipalities to be sort of uh, saying that they can solve this problem, uh, neither is really true. Mm -hmm. uh, these problems aren't just local and aren't just regional, aren't just provincial, aren't just national. Uh, they're, they're, they're international. And Canada wants to be a place that grows. Most of our setup uh, in terms of our e economic uh, objectives are based on immigration and uh, culturally that's also who we are and who we've been for a very long time. And that's really compromised if we don't build affordable housing. Mm -hmm. I think maybe some people thought maybe we'd just bring in just rich people from all over the world. <laughs> but you know we ended up with a real worker shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, now we've come, come face to face with uh, our future and I get a tremendous amount of hope because for the first time in uh, maybe my lifetime, maybe as far back as I can remember anyway, we have indigenous governments as partners, maybe you know the largest partner, but certainly equal partners in many of these deals, and local governments and provincial governments and federal governments all not just saying stuff about housing, but all actually doing things, all actually at the table, all actually consistently, you know, uh, updating their proposals as elections go by. There's a lot of uh, energy, and I think it's being driven by the public. I think the public's way out of the politicians on this issue. But um, a lot of justice uh, will be served this decade in the area of housing. I do want to... Um, Maybe ask Rebecca about the Vancouver Tenants Union, mm -hmm. um, because I think that's one of the new things that's happened over the past four or five years is uh, tenants have become housing activists. And when I was involved, I was uh, CEO of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association, who are landlords. Uh, you know, they run 60, 70,000 units of uh, social housing around the province. And... Um, we were making the case that the housing was needed for tenants and prospective tenants, uh, but we, with the exception of co-op members who've been very uh, activists for, for a very long time and were very involved in the Housing Central movement, um, didn't have the participation of the tenants in a large way. And now I see renters uh, at city hall meetings regularly advocating for rental housing, uh, pushing the envelope when it comes to the proposals that politicians are putting forward out there. Um, do you think like tenants as a social movement is something that is 
growing and will be strong and sustainable for a long time here? Or is it just a reflection of the current, uh, you know, everybody's talking about it, so I'm going to get involved in the cause? Are you building um, something big? We're trying to build something big. I mean, it, people keep joining because they're getting squeezed from every direction. We get so many emails. There's so much suffering out there. Uh, it used to be that when the, the Vancouver Tenants Union was first formed, we were trying to get involved in advocacy. We were trying to help people navigate their way through the residential tenancy board, things like that, and we were just burning out because the need was so huge. Yeah. So when we kind of come back and regrouped, we're now working on organizing buildings. So someone reaches out to us and says, hey, my landlord does this, this, and this. Uh, it's not just me. There's other people in the building have the same complaints. We go in. We talk to all the tenants. We try to bring them together. We try to identify the leaders in that group, and we get them to come together to make changes with their landlord, either through direct action. It usually starts with something as simple as uh, everyone signs a letter together and then escalate from there. Uh, like There's one building I've been working in a uh, near commercial that uh, they reached out to us because like the windows have been rotting out of the wall and their patio doors like rot and fall on them things like that and nothing was being done because uh, the landlord just, I mean they're still paying like $800 a month in rent so there's no real incentive for the landlord to do much about it so they've come together now and we're hoping that they'll start their actions soon to get some change done. And they have gotten some already. They got their windows fixed, which was a big one. And now hopefully they can work on the mold and the pests and everything else that makes it like close to unmovable. Uh, there's one set of tenants in there who have moved here from India for like a better life, for jobs and opportunities like that. And they've moved to this building. They're like, we left India for this because <laughs> mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. just so abysmal. So that's it's interesting that you bring that up because in the uh, building that I own, a uh, rental property in, um, I'm struggling so much trying to get the other landlords in the building to maintain the building properly. Yes. And we recently had an assessment where they said it was going to cost $1.7 to $2.2 million for us to basically fix the building and get it properly functioning. The studs are rotting out, all, all these kinds of things that are completely preventable yeah. if you do regular maintenance. Mm -hmm. But there's this idea, I guess, among a lot of the landlords that they can make higher short-term profits if they just don't yes. do anything. Yes. And they don't think about the fact that you're losing value in the property if you don't, but you're also not treating your tenants well if you're not giving them a safe place to live. That. And you probably don't know this about me. I used to work in investment real estate, and that mm. was a big thing. Like my boss was like, "I'm not going to replace a roof at 10 years when its life is up. I'm going to replace the roof when water is coming in everywhere, and it's a, you know a crisis at that point." So it's not <laughs> it's not sort of a, a small issue. This is something that's quite prevalent. Oh yes, it was extremely because like. I know the building I was just talking about, uh, one reason the landlord won't do anything is because they're waiting their turn to redevelop. Mm. Because it's a three-story right now. It can go up to six stories as part of the Grand Woodland Plant. That's one reason I'm going to be evicted, because even though 
my place, which is lovely. It has been a, it's uh, probably 70 years old, but it's in great shape because they just renovated it five years ago, but then the big development sign of doom went up. They're going to tear it down and make a six-story building instead. Right. That I know that happens quite a lot in Coquitlam, where I live as well, where they'll take a three-story building and then approve a high-rise in that area. So the city will often say, we're creating affordable housing. We're going to give you this development, and yay us, we've got 4% affordable units in this building, which then you kind of go, okay, 4% affordable units, like well, what does that mean in terms of numbers? They're not actually affordable. They're just right. slightly below market. Right. And then you also compare that price of those below market units to the price of the units in the older building that was there previously, which is technically market. Yeah but it's significantly less than the below market units that are going to be available in the new yes. building. Yeah, there's a, there was a, another similar development we got involved in because it was like near Nanaimo and Hastings. Uh, the, the big problem was the tenants were being forced out and they were trying to, the landlord was trying to appease them with the tenant rental uh, protection policy, which is woefully inadequate in Vancouver. It should come from the province down and, be, and protect everyone, but it doesn't. Um, they were paying about $1,000 in rent for a place that was uh, falling apart. And the new place that's gone up, uh, it was $3,700 for much smaller places. Wow. And they, but the tenants had the right of first refusal coming back in, <laughs> which was supposed to be like the perk of them getting turned out. <laughs> right. And this all comes back to uh, this right to housing issue, um, because right to housing doesn't mean you have the right to a specific unit at a certain price for your entire life, but it does mean that you have the right to housing that is adequate. Um, in your community, and we have a, a big gap there now because my kids are just graduating high school. My eldest started at university, and nobody in the graduating class believes that they can graduate and get a degree and work in their community and live there as well. In fact, what kids are kind of taught these days is you have to go off to university then go get rich in some other city, and when you have enough money, then you'll be welcome back to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. That's how we're raising our kids. And it's a very, very weird way to build a community uh, where you expect people to leave uh, and you know only come back if they're rich. That's very, very weird, and it's not sustainable, and it's not realistic either. Um, people who live in Vancouver have a right to live in Vancouver, and we should want them and more of them here. Mm -hmm. Province-wide, immigration rates are rising, but people are also coming from other provinces around Canada. And I think on some level, BC should be a place where people come from can across Canada to build a life. We have to accommodate all of that. That's the job of, uh, of society and government. And um, what we missed was doing it for people at all different income levels. One of the failures of our social housing stock that we built in Canada through the 60s and 70s is in many of the developments, all of the rents are exactly the same. And um, all of the developments 
relied on ongoing government subsidy every single year. They're called operating agreements. And so you've got nonprofits or co-ops waiting for a government check every month to pay their bills, and everybody else uh, who's living there paying an affordable rent, um, but it not being enough to maintain those buildings. So then, over the decades, not only does the building fall apart, but the whole economics of it are faulty. It'll never work out. So when we went through um, replanning out the social housing stock we'd like to see in BC, and what we're building now is we've gotten more into these uh, mixed income models so that you do have units that are at higher rents and lower rents and medium rents and different size units all in the same building. Mm -hmm. But they don't require ongoing government subsidy uh, forever anymore. They can be completely self-financing in perpetuity. So we're going to see hundreds of years worth of affordable housing in BC uh, that's being built by this generation right now. Um, probably, you know, some, probably over 100,000 units of it. And uh, they'll be at a, a mix of incomes, which I think we need because um, there's just a wide range of people who are just looking for security of tenure, just to know that they have a place that they're going to be able to bank on uh, being there every night so that they can go get a job or take care of their kids or have a tea or uh, take care of a health issue. That security of tenure has really disappeared for people. They feel like, oh, I could be evicted any day now. Our building could be demolished, demolished any day now. And the eviction rates in BC are so high compared to almost anywhere in the world. It's, mm -hmm. it's very, very high. It's become almost like a cultural, right? Like everybody talks about the number of times they've been evicted. That's really abnormal. Uh, you know, we've got to get back to a place where renters who are paying almost all that they are making um, to feel empowered with that, to be able to say to you as a landlord, hey, uh, fix my tap. It's leaking, right? Um, this is a reasonable thing or I'm out of here. Um, right now, renters feel supplicant to any whims and they, you know, have to line up for long, long times to even get a place. And that's just a broken, broken, I mean, how you, how do you tell anybody to invest here to build a business? How do you tell anybody who's coming to uh, shoot a film uh, or uh, to reconnect with family or to immigrate that they should come here when we have a situation like this? Mm -hmm. uh, it's really hard. And we want them all here and we want to grow, but it, it's... And you need that sort of working class of people, those lower income jobs in order to make sure that your city's function. So to your point about saying, okay, we'll just leave, go work somewhere else and come back. If you can't have a city that supports your lower income workers, then your city doesn't really operate. Yeah, you need support for lower income workers. Uh, and you also 20% of people, 30% of people don't work mm -hmm. or don't pay any taxes at all. It's still part of your society. Mm -hmm. if, if somebody is uh, retired or a child or whatever, like, you know, we've gotten, it's part of the financialization of housing is we've looked at everything through this uh, lens of, well, you know, uh, how much do you produce and what can you afford? You know, we're... Even if there was no money, we would still want to be able to shelter all of us. Mm -hmm. it, you know, even if we were 
pushed onto an island or in an emergency. Tim Richter, who's the head of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, uh, was really taken by how quickly Alberta responded in an emergency uh, through floods and fires to put sandbags up and to find housing for everybody. And he knows now that every government has the ability to do that right now for people who are unsheltered mm -hmm. and choose not to. And so cities could get very, very active in putting together a housing first place where they had a buy list registry of everybody who is unsheltered um, and had done some basic triage to figure out who needed homes most and what neighborhoods were suitable for them and had uh, individuals who were helping them get there. But people don't even have navigators to help them navigate through the through the bureaucratic systems right now. And um, the major investments that need to happen into things like SROs uh, aren't there. Um, and I hope if somebody has a plan, but I, I don't think BC has an emergency housing plan. I've looked into it uh, with the climate risks that are not just going, not just ahead, but the disasters we've already seen, mm -hmm. you would think somebody would be coming up with an emergency plan, but we, we really don't have these things in place as a society yet. Maybe uh, it just speaks to our immaturity. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it speaks to those four-year election cycles that you were referring to. And, and I think that's part of it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's a hard one to answer. Yeah, I mean, it forces us to look at ourselves and say there's something wrong with us, that we say all of these things about wanting to take care of the most vulnerable. But when any of us are in positions of authority, we actually don't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all support lots of people of lots of political stripes, and they just uh, don't do it. They just don't care enough. We don't care enough. It's not a they. It's we as a society don't care enough um, about homelessness. Uh, because our, our politicians, whether you like them or not, they're, the, they're reflections of us. You know, they're just looking for the talking points that poll well. Mm -hmm. uh, they're trying to say the words back to us that we want to hear. Uh, and, the, you know, they're, they're not coming out and saying we've failed. We've failed people uh, who are unsheltered and we're going to step up now and provide them the basic essentials of life. I mean, a minimum income would be reasonable to me. Mm -hmm. There's Canada's talking about a Canada disability benefit, which I think could help tremendously. Yes. Um, but if provinces claw it back, uh, provinces are so negligent in this country when it comes to the poor. Uh, uh, I um, had been making some TikToks and tweets about uh, our shelter right here. It's the same thing across the country. You know, I'm, I, I, I don't know how we just let 15 years pass and, and not give people a penny. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. So I think something's wrong with us. Yeah, I mean, I've been noticing it uh, out campaigning with candidates in Coquitlam, in, you know, for the upcoming municipal election. And uh, one of the things that I noticed, uh, it was a tweet by Justin McElroy, who laid out the shelters that are available in all of the cities around the Lower Mainland. And Vancouver's basically has the shelters for all of the yeah. Lower Mainland. None of the other cities are really pulling their weight. And we have one in Coquitlam called Gordon House where uh, all of the, or almost every resident whose door you knock on will say, that's a problem. 
not a, it's not a good thing, it's a problem. They say it's bringing crime to the neighborhood. It's, um, you know, we don't want to see that in our backyard sort of mentality. And for that reason, the political candidates don't talk about homelessness because yeah. they know it's not going to get them votes. They know the people on the door are going to say, no, we don't want more shelters here because it's going to bring the kind of people that we don't like to the yeah. city. Well, to political candidates who are running in this election, uh, I would say to them, um, grow up, be the adults in the room, tell your society that you want to lead, that you have a job to do. And part of that job is to provide everybody uh, with shelter, that you don't want to be a society where people have to uh, sleep outside because you didn't make the hard decisions uh, when the opportunity was in front of you that you kowtowed to uh, patience and, uh, instead of uh, action. So Housing Central team is running a Make Housing Central campaign this municipal election. They'll be putting together five calls to action. Among them are going to be asking politicians to be very clear that they believe that social housing and rental housing needs to be legalized. I don't think shelters are the answer. Um, I think we probably have too many of them. The cost of maintaining them uh, had uh, is hundreds of millions of dollars a year, which we could be using to build affordable housing. If the government wanted to to house everyone, right? Because shelters, to me, seem like a stopgap measure, right? They're intended to be someone's in crisis, they find a shelter, then they find, you know, a proper place to live. But if they don't have the peace of being able to find the proper place to live, they wind up just being stuck in a shelter. Well, they, they only end up stuck, but the whole system ends up stuck. Uh, in my book, I called this stuckflation. Uh, the cost of everything is going up, but nobody is actually able to have any change in their life. And then so if you are a homeowner, the value of your house may have gone up, but you can't buy anything else in your neighborhood. You're kind of stuck, right? And if you own a townhouse, if you wanted to get a detached home, that gap between those had increased so much, you're kind of stuck in a townhouse. And you can't, if you were renting and wanted to be able to purchase, um, that gap it went up faster than incomes did. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of ended up stuck renting. And I met people who would be renting a two-bedroom and their roommate left. But the rent on their two-bedroom, because it's rent-controlled, is uh, lower than what it would cost to rent a one-bedroom on the market. So they end up overhoused. And in a two-bedroom, when they only need a one-bedroom, because if they move, then their whole economic situation collapses. And similarly, if somebody is unsheltered, the you know, gap between uh, that 375 and a, and a market rental has become so large that they've ended up stuck. Mm-hmm. So in this area of massive wealth creation, where our province is pulling in billions and billions of dollars, particularly from housing, everybody has kind of become stuck, including seniors, who, um, you know, we designed a lot of our homes, a lot of our neighborhoods, with kind of a school at the center and detached homes around it, thinking that all those detached homes would be filled with four or five kids each, and then they would all fill the school up. But over the decades, what's happened is seniors uh, have stayed in those homes, raised their kids in it, the kids have left or gone out to the burbs, and the population inside our city or around schools is so low 
that like schools are facing closure in a massive growing city like Vancouver. Makes no sense at all, but it happens all over the world uh, and all over North America because of poor city building, because of apartment bans, uh, and because of this sort of mentality we had that we were going to mow over all of Canada and build mansions for everybody. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't even want to live that lifestyle anymore because you've got no shops nearby and uh, no schools nearby and, uh, you know, no transit. Uh, mm -hmm. um, the new kind of developments that are being proposed are going to be uh, more and more what I call smart housing. Uh, sustainable means green, built to the best standards, mixed income, uh, affordable rentals, near transit. And I think more and more that's... Walkable uh, communities. Yeah, uh, what we're seeing, uh, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututu uh, at uh, Sanak is a very uh, a good example of that. I mean, that's going to have the highest walkability score around and will be built to modern standards and will be rental for decades and decades mm -hmm. and decades. Uh, and uh, I think... If you look to what uh, the co-op housing sector and the community land trust is doing now, and just at Hogan's Alley, yeah. I was so excited to hear today um, Dr. June Francis and others announcing that uh, they're now ready for uh, that Hogan's Alley to be moved to a community land trust. That means that that housing will be not only existent, but affordable in perpetuity. That's a very special thing. Uh, nobody's been doing that for us for the past few decades, building stuff that would be perpetually affordable. Um, we're doing something unique uh, on the West Coast here. I've not seen that kind of momentum across the country yet. Mm -hmm. And right. we're actually going to have to become the teachers, I think, on the continent. We're learning, I think, uh, you know, from, from other places, and we're trying things out here. Um, but we're a few years ahead in terms of the funding and the building and the public support uh, for things like this. But slowly, I think, urbanism is replacing neoliberalism as the sort of center of thought in society. And so more and more people are thinking about things like housing and climate, transportation, basic mobility and, and equity issues uh, instead of just looking at everything through a financial lens. Right. Well, it's a step in the, in the right direction then. Do you have any comments around the intersection that exists between reconciliation and housing affordability advocacy work, given that we're currently residing on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nation? And no displacement on stolen land, as we say. Uh, I mean... Hastings uh, has a large indigenous population, so failing that that's just an, another thing that's an absolute failure down there. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine reconciliation being possible while we still have mass homelessness. And the fact that indigenous people are disproportionately represented in homeless counts shows me that this housing crisis is... Uh, uh, why, you know, is colonial in nature mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. you take people's land and complain about homelessness. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I'm also wondering, so we're talking about trying to find people homes on someone else's land. Is Is there sort of a... Oh, it's not someone else's. I mean, I don't think that's ever what... Uh, First Nations have said is that you know, this is ours and it's not yours. Uh, the problem has been 
Canadians and governments and settlers saying this is ours and not yours. Mm. Uh, that, that, that there is some separation and some, some difference. Um, every Indigenous nation I've interacted with in BC have put welcoming as like a hallmark of who they are as a people. And, uh, you know, these developments that are going up, you know, MST is the largest developer now in, in Vancouver. Um, they're not doing it to keep people off their land. They're trying to welcome as many people as possible. Right. Uh, and so uh, I think, um, but I do think, you know, the fact that they've chosen rental is significant. This uh, is the largest rental housing proposal that um, I've seen in, in Canada. I mean, not only is it uh, many thousands of units, but CMHC has now... Uh, done the lending for it at $1.4 billion. It's the largest loan Canada's given out. Mm-hmm. And it's to Indigenous nations. So I uh, I think this is really, really important what's going on. And, you know, it may not have been what I would have devised. Um, uh, you know, I'm more of a non-profit sort of uh, person. But um, that's what's so beautiful about it is it's Indigenous leadership in a modern way leading the country, telling them this is where we're going. Are you with us? And I think it's going to be uh, something that other nations all across Canada uh, learn from and, and try and replicate. In your work with VTU, what are some kinds of policies that you're trying to push for that would address this from the government side of things? Mostly we oppose any kind of financialized housing, like across the board. Uh, there's been so little done on social housing that uh, we feel that that is like that's what should be done first. I mean, we have limited resources. Uh, construct. I mean, you work in construction. You know what the labor force is like. You know, almost what, non-existent at the yeah. moment, or difficult to find. You know people. what materials cost. So a lot. Yeah. We should, you know, be using in the few that we have to rebuild the bottom first before making more investment vehicles for more for for more landlords. Right, so before having those kinds of properties that people buy up and leave vacant or um, hang on to in whatever form so that they can profit off of them later. Um, So kind of to that point then, if VTU doesn't believe that housing should be a commodity or something that's, I I guess, profitable, does that stance recognize fair payment for things like trades work, building management? And does it also mean that the government should become landlords? Uh, and, and Well, not necessarily government. Uh, government does need to invest, but at the same time, like, the right to, um, like, self-determined housing, like, through co-ops, where the money that goes towards your rent is what's going towards uh, keeping the place up. It's not going to, you know, someone else's bank account. It's... It's for the whole community. We're looking to bring the community back in to help build communities because that will uh, alleviate so many other problems. I mean, there's a loneliness epidemic, and part of that is you can't uh, feel safe in your community anymore because you never know when you're going to be displaced again. Right. Right, so the idea is to create more security and be able to reinvest the money that people are putting towards their housing back into their housing. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I mean, we come, we have, there's a lot of labor union people in 
in our union as well. And so, yeah, we absolutely think that people should be paid for the work that they're doing. We absolutely 100%. But at the end of the day, it, it should all be a self-sustaining system and not someone skimming off the top as well. Yeah, I mean, that sounds kind of like my personal philosophy to renting my place out is when I'm looking at the numbers, I, I don't want to be profiting off of an affordability crisis. Um, I think I deserve to get paid for the construction work that I do yeah. on my place. I think I deserve to get paid for managing the place, but I don't think I get, I deserve to get paid for sitting on my butt and doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Has your experience growing up in social housing led you to believe that that is a good solution to an affordability crisis? Like, should we be building more social housing? Yeah, we shouldn't have stopped. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly didn't appreciate it when I was living in it. And uh, I hid it for a lot of years. You know, I came out of uh, a life in social housing and worked very hard to never think about it again. Hmm. Became very active in politics and started walking in fancy circles and never kind of mentioned it. But as I got older, I realized that uh, it forms this sort of... Uh, essential connection for our whole social safety net. You know, it's, it's, it's the string that ties it all together uh, in Canada, that you could have the best healthcare system and advanced climate programs and wonderful universities and colleges. You could be great social justice warriors. Um, but if you do not have housing, if you cannot offer people a home, then everything else falls through the cracks and human rights becomes a talking point instead of something you can actually deliver as a society. And uh, when I started working in the housing sector, um, I hadn't realized too that the lived experience of growing up in social housing was a kind of expertise that none of my colleagues had had. So I would be touring around, going to different developments, and I would be like, ah, I used to live there. Oh, my Aunt Shelley used to live over there. And, mm -hmm. you know, I know these buildings, and I know what the rents are, and I know how the programs work. Uh, I remember working in a constituency office, and people would come in and ask for help with their cases. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, my mom used to use this program, and I know this. And you could call Betty over at the social services office. And, you know, that um, lived experience uh, is extremely was extremely valuable for me in politics, uh, and then uh, as um, as as a leader in the housing movement here in BC, you you find out that like housing executives are largely extremely wealthy, even in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd be every night just people telling you about their acreages and. Um, it you know to to get to the top of any field you're probably uh, a, a pretty uh, a pretty wealthy but it, it meant that meant that I had something that they they all couldn't there was a kind of learning that I had that they couldn't get right you're bringing those like, pieces together of that sort of being politically involved connected to those people but also having that experience that a lot of them don't have yeah so I would say to people listening to your podcast 
whichever area of social justice they're passionate about, don't be afraid to be feel confident that they have some lived experience and, and talk about that like it's a credential mm -hmm. uh, because it's just as good. It's, you know, I later got an advanced certificate in, um, in affordable housing uh, with the Chartered Institute of Housing. And I'm pretty sure that lived experience being raised in social housing was, was more valuable. Yeah, I mean, I think about the podcast that we did on... Um, I'm trying to remember the topic, but it was on finances. And we, you know, we, we try to have one guest who's an expert and another guest who has lived experience. And a lot of times there's overlap in yeah. there. But in this case, you have the financial advisor and then you have the person with no finances, mm -hmm. right? And so you've got one person who very much understands uh, the inequities of finances because they're living it. And you have another person who is, you know, the expert, but probably isn't really the expert when it comes to that conversation that we were having. So, um, yeah, I think that lived experience is incredibly important when it comes to social justice advocacy work. May I ask, uh, was the social housing you grew up in, uh, like, it, was it, like, adequate housing? Was it uh, dignified? Yeah, um, extremely. Okay. And part of that's because of my age. Uh, I'm okay. 45 now, okay. and so I was born in 76. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, a lot of the housing that we would have moved into would have been in the early 1980s and okay. 90s. So it's fairly new back then. They were mostly brand new. Okay. And because my mom, you know, was extremely young with very young kids, we were often the first on the list to get into brand new social housing uh, when it was built. My brother and I used to uh, go into an empty place when we first moved in. And, you know, those little rubber balls that big bounce we would take yeah. them and just whip them around the, the <laughs> place in these brand new uh, empty uh, empty buildings and uh, we were it was we were as proud as could be uh, as anybody else uh, it's perfectly dignified and you know in many cases it's much better too than anything the market could deliver now yeah. Uh, you know, there are townhouses all over Coquitlam that are social housing, and you couldn't build private market townhouses for less than seven, eight hundred thousand, maybe over a million dollars a unit now. Mm -hmm. And there's, but there's plenty of social housing for you know three, four, five hundred dollars a month that are now more deteriorated, but uh, certainly large and and dignified uh, buildings and. Um, there used to be a lot more flexibility, though, too, because sometimes a church would give a, you know, they would have an old place and you would crash in the upstairs for a little while and stuff like that. It would sort of bounce around across the country. You gave a presentation in 2016 where you stated that single mothers pay the biggest proportion of their income on rent. Is that still the case? Have the dynamics shifted a little bit? Well, yeah, that was based on data from our uh, rental housing index. And in fact, it was Coquitlam that stood out in that um, where it was worst off in, in the province for, for single mothers. That was also my uh, life experience, too, is uh, not just my mother, but she had uh, five sisters and uh, many of them ended up uh, single mothers, including, uh, you know, uh, my mother's mother. And um, it scares me right now. We're just starting to see in Canada children starting to be born into homelessness, mm -hmm. which hasn't really been statistically significant or notable and isn't yet, but we're just at the cusp now of this. And um, mothers 
uh, you know, there's a there's a systemic patriarchy to the way we we deliver housing, and uh, for many years, you know, women weren't allowed to live on their own, weren't allowed to rent certain buildings, uh, were considered uh, their, their assets the, the same as their husbands, or they were considered assets of their husbands. So unpackaging all of this uh, will take time. But in the meantime, um, we say mothers, but it's really like children that end up uh, not having adequate food or housing that's anywhere near their school uh, or, or basic stability. And... Um, and so I don't know statistically uh, how bad they are I, uh, today. Uh, I suspect things have probably gotten worse rather than better. Right. If trends were to... Seems like it's gotten worse across the board. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few key groups in housing that I would say are the equity-seeking groups. So indigenous are the largest percentage of people who are homeless. The um, fastest-growing group of homeless people are seniors. One of the reasons I believe this is the case is many seniors were taught that if they saved up, they could live off the interest. It would be enough to pay their rent. But interest rates went down to zero, and uh, all of their fixed incomes weren't really paying anything to them and have become depleted. And uh, so you end up with many, many seniors. See, you know, seniors who owned ended up having a massive wealth creation beyond their wildest imagination. Seniors who rented are the fastest growing group of homeless people. Right. Uh, I think you have uh, young adults who uh, end up staying in their parents' places for many more years than they expect, or living on their own, paying almost all of their income to just food and rent. I think, you know, that's it's quite ridiculous. But single mothers uh, should, you know, receive such enormous support from government because you only have a few years where you can um, take a child and give them the opportunity uh, to get through school mm -hmm. and it just you know I went through maybe 12 schools by grade 12 if they count but it's probably close certainly that many homes and uh, I don't think that's good for anybody Mm -hmm. I don't think I got a great education that way. I was a pretty smart kid, but I barely graduated because I just, I, I think part of it was just, um, you know, society doesn't make a connection between kids and school and stability and food and in any sort of dignified way. They, you know, parents are kind of left on the lurch a bit on their own. Uh, and when you're a single person, it's a, it's a whole tremendous burden and part of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that either of you want to bring up before we wrap things up, um, or maybe give some ideas about what people who want to advocate for affordable housing can do? For people who want to advocate for affordable housing, there are so many ways to do it. Um, Vancouver Tenants Union. Is, is one way. Uh, being involved with a nonprofit that provides housing is another way. Being active in a political party. All of the political parties are trying to shape and form their policies right now to speak to uh, housing in a way that resonates with people. So I think there is an opportunity in all parties 
um, to make housing central to their their platforms and issues and where is it they're going. Um, but you know, one thing I didn't foresee was seeing a whole generation of people who were passionate about housing and solving homelessness being forced to line up at city hall meetings every single night on the phone for hours and hours on hold. I would suggest that all of them are so passionate and trying to do best for their society on probably the most important issue in their community. Mm -hmm. But these broken processes have to change. And just because you're a housing advocate does not mean that you shouldn't also be an advocate for reform, for democratic reform, for electoral reform, but for systemic reforms to the ways that we consult and interact uh, with each other as a society. Because many, many people who uh, support the status quo do it by entrenching these long processes that prevent any action. And uh, going through their processes just to prove how ridiculous they are is one way of going through life, uh, but another is taking over governments and fixing these broken issues. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, don't be afraid as a housing advocate to become a councillor or a mayor or an MP or an MLA or a premier or a prime minister. Those are all jobs that, that might be there ahead of you. And I would say too, um, having watched climate activists in Canada spend many, many years uh, making the case that the cause was emergent and immediate and then watching both, you know, after Gore in the United States and then Dion here in Canada, after both uh, governments didn't happen and climate action stopped for the better part of 15 years after that. I would say that um, very important to be on the outside and be a good advocate and to join all these associations. But at some time, at some point, I think you have to take charge and you have to be the government. And climate activists are largely still on the outside, but I think we're going to need them in government. I think we're going to need them to take on senior levels of, of responsibility in all kinds of areas of government to because it takes so long for housing and climate in particular. You know, uh, emissions take a long time to come down. Systems that we're reliant on for oil are so systemic and housing takes so long to build. But these two issues in particular, um, if you're passionate about them, don't believe that your place is always on the outside. It may, uh, it may be that you're needed on the inside uh, because they, the people on the inside don't know what they're doing because they haven't had to work on these issues before. Mm -hmm. Nobody in government has had to work on housing for 30 years. You think there's no expertise and no staff to work on it on the outside? It's even worse on the inside. They've been twiddling their thumbs. And uh, climate is, is kind of similar. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Rebecca? We're so far behind on housing that we're not going to build our way out anytime soon. And so protecting tenants and keeping people in their homes, keeping home keeping buildings maintained is central to that so we don't end up making things even worse. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for joining thank me today. Um, this It's been great meeting both of you. At, well, not both of you. <laughs> I work with Rebecca. It's been nice, me, me, nice meeting you. 
And um, thank you both for being on the podcast. This has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Burling. This conversation has been on housing affordability, and I look forward to seeing you in two weeks. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Burling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.